Well, we have an excellent uh, lineup of speakers over the next number of weeks. You know, and as Mickey uh, noted, we're going to have a Good Friday service here. If you've not been here for that, uh, it's Good Friday from noon to three. We're going to have a Monday Thursday service here. We do the Living Last Supper and a wonderful Easter Sunday morning service as well. So we hope you can join us. But you know, we are uh, here on this series looking at spiritual warfare, as we've talked last week, and we we we. We touched on the subject last week, and over the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at the various pieces of armor that God's calling us to put on as we fight spiritual battles. In our passage uh, tonight and over the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, it says in verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And last week, we looked at that belt of truth. And this week, we're turning our attention to the, the, the breastplate of righteousness. And it's my honor to uh, introduce our speaker this evening, the Right Reverend Dr. John Rogers, who's the Dean and President Emeritus at Trinity School for Ministry. He's a a retired bishop with the Anglican Mission in America. Uh, If you've not read his book, it's a wonderful book. It's called The Essential Truths for Christians, a commentary on the Anglican 39 Articles and on Introduction to Systematic Theology. It's a wonderful book, and we are so honored to have you, uh, sir, here with us, teaching us from Ephesians uh, chapter 6 and the breastplate of righteousness. So will you please welcome uh, this evening the Right Reverend Dr. John Rogers. Thank you, Jared. Mm-hmm. Do you need a chair? Let's just bow our heads. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we might in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, so that through patience and the comfort of thy holy word, we may ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen. Well, um, let me just say I'm very honored to be here and very thankful. I didn't pick this text. I was assigned this text, which is interesting, um, which meant that God had something to tell me. So I I don't know whether it's going to do you any good, but it's done me a great deal of good just preparing it for you and for myself. Uh, The breastplate of righteousness. Well, as you heard, our text, the broad text, is this armor that we're talking about in the midst of a combat. Put on the whole armor of God. And our particular one tonight is the breastplate of righteousness. 
Now, the central point of our big text is that as Christians, we are unavoidably, like it or not, engaged in a serious and real spiritual struggle and warfare. And uh, we seek to, as we Christians seek to embody the kingdom of God in ourselves, stand in the kingdom of God, we come under attack. And the more prominent and obvious we are, the more the attack is is aimed at us. Um, And it's spiritual forces in high places, permeating society, and not to lose sight of the indwelling sin within each of us. Now, the promise is that if we stand firm, both as in defense and offense, standing is not just not being defeated. It's also standing is to stand in the offense. The very gates, Jesus tells us, the very gates of hell will not be able to withstand God's kingdom as it's advanced through his people. So it's not that we're on the, on the defense simply. We're also on the offense. But, and here's the, the, the catch, we can neither stand nor prevail in our own power alone. We need to engage in this warfare surrounded and uh, by the strength and the period of God, power of God that empowers us as he works with us and within us. As he speaks to us through the scriptures, the worship of the church, the fellowship of brothers and sisters, and our own discipleship and quiet time. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit who we we are taught is at work within us. Within us as a congregation, but also within us as individuals. So the Apostle Paul wants to make this point. He uses a metaphor that we need to be clothed with the power of God to do this and that we're called to do it. And he looks at the Roman soldiers guarding him and he takes note of their armor so that they're, they're prepared for whatever might come in their task and responsibility. And he says, yep, you all need to put on armor too. Not the armor of Rome, but the armor of God. The whole armor of God. Now, I understand on Ash Wednesday, you started with the first part, which was to fasten on the belt of truth. All of the equipment to follow in many ways is dependent on the belt of truth. The Christian faith is utterly founded on the absolute truth of God's revelation found in Holy Scripture and in, supremely in Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate, but also the Word written, the Word that we receive through the prophets and through the apostles, and which has been attested by believing Christians for over 2,000 years. People say, this is true, this has given us life. So the, the truth is absolutely essential and the and the other the other parts of the armor, so to speak, depend on that truth. The truth of God and the truth about God. And the truth about God is that He is holy. Now what to get at our text, we're gonna to have to kind of move through much of Holy Scripture 
And I hope uh, I don't just uh, leave you in the in the dust by going too fast. It, obviously, we can't do a lot of detail, but it, but it's you can't get to the righteousness without taking some some soundings before we get there. So God is holy. And that leads us to this whole concept of righteousness and the breastplate of righteousness. Let's take a look at that phrase, the, bless, the, bre- the breastplate. That covers basically from the neck down to, through the groin. This is a, an, important, an important portion of our armor because a blow to that part of our body would, which would most normally be fatal. It certainly would take us out of the combat. And we'd be of, of no great use in the warfare. So breastplate is important. Just simply underlines the importance of this righteousness. So then, then we want to look at uh, the righteousness. The breastplate is of God's righteousness. But what precisely is God's righteousness? Well, we need to think for a moment first about God and his holiness. For holiness is, is the ground of righteousness. It's the righteousness is holiness applied. We'll get to that in just a second. What is God's holiness? Holy, holy, holy. When we say these things, what do we mean? And we mean things very important. And things that our culture doesn't have a clue about. We are very profoundly countercultural as Christians, much more so than we realize. And uh, I hope to make that clear as we move along. The root meaning of holy in the Bible is separateness, separation, to be different than or distinct from, to be distinguished as other than. That's the root meaning. Now, when it's applied to God, it means that he is as the creator other than his creation. He is mighty. He is the creator of all that is. He is above us. He is infinite. He's majestic. He's sovereign. And we are under him. We are dependent upon him. And we are accountable to him. The first and utterly essential confession of us as Christians is that we're not God. This may come as a shock because we behave as if we were often, but we really are not God, nor is the universe God. And I would put it to you, that's what our culture tends to teach us and to teach our children. But it's wrong. So any view of reality that does not begin confessing that God is the sovereign creator of the universe is, is of no help in this combat and totally misunderstands the situation. To believe as our culture believes in a secular worldview is really to have lost the battle or really not to be in it. You're simply going along with the flow. The holiness of God, when it refers to him in the Bible, most often, or at least frequently, refers to God in all of his attributes. Put together, just the greatness of God, the majesty of God, 
His, his, his lordship is holy. His love is holy. His forgiveness is holy. He is holy in every way. His love, his judgment, everything points to this otherness. He, he does this in, in, in a superlative way, an incomparable way. But maybe more often than that general statement, the holiness of God refers to his moral purity. God is the ground and the anchor of morality. And he is too holy to behold evil. He cannot by his own nature as well as by his position as creator, as well as the judge of all the earth, condone evil. He cannot wink at it. It's, it's not that he's having a snit. It's just contrary to his nature. It's like sunlight and mold. The mold can't handle the sunlight. For evil to come to the presence of God, it's, it, the evil must be dealt with. So God can't just ignore it. And he doesn't. Now that does bring us to ourselves. To consideration of ourselves. See, everything is hanging together here. If you buy the secular worldview and try to talk about reality without God, you cannot understand who you are. Your self-understanding is wrong. I'll tell you that right now. It must be. Because it's contrary to the truth. If we had time, I, you know, I, well, I just think of various stories. Uh, our son, our first child, we were all learning, the first just still learning, I guess. We had four. <laughs> I don't know that I've really made it yet, but, you know, he, well, at first, all we had to do was look cross-eyed at him, and he'd, he'd, he'd weep and try, you know, repent, and, for a while, at least. But then one day, I'd speak to him, and he really wouldn't pay as much attention anymore. Why? Because he was listening to his peer group to tell him who he was. Who tells you who you are? Wherein lies your fundamental dignity? Where do you, where do you get your values? Where do you know what is right and wrong? Well, mom and dad, yeah, but it's got to be deeper than that. We live in a culture that can't handle this question. You can't get it out of a test tube. It's a great price to try to view reality without God. It is a spiritual evil against which we are at war. It's worse in many ways than tanks and bombs. For it attacks the soul, the very meaning of life itself. So, what about us? Well, God tells us that he made us in his image and likeness. He made us in a relationship with himself. A good one, did he not? And, and he made us for a relationship with himself. And in that relationship, we're accountable to him. He's a creator. We're the creature. He loves us, and we love him back. It's, that's where it's all, that's the way it's 
comes out of, out of his creative purpose. And he says to us, be holy for I am holy. That is to say we are created in our character to reflect his character. If he's loving, in a superlative way we can't fully grasp, yet we, we know what it is to love. We're to be like that only more so by the help and grace of God. Is he wise? We're to take thought. Is he caring? We're to be caring. And we too are to be set apart from evil. We too cannot just go along, go along to get along. Because that won't work. They're going to run right, against, right up against the reality of the moral structure of reality itself on God. So to be accountable to God and to be like him in all respects is, to, is for us to be holy as he is holy. Now that leads us to righteousness now. Creator, holy, now righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is holiness as expressed and applied to our decisions, our desires, and our actions. God always does right what he does. Because he's holy. And so he's righteous. He's righteous in all that he does, all that he feels, in his judging, in his loving, in his saving, in his guiding, and in his condemning. Yes. And so we're to be like that in our, heart, in our desiring, in our judging, discerning. For us, it's better to call it discerning. In our uh, guiding, our caring, we too are, are created to be and called to be righteous. Now this leads us into a great dilemma, does it not? I seem to be losing all my little notes here, but that's all right. Well, if you can, I'll ignore it if you can ignore it. <laughs> bigger lip. We need a bigger lip. This leads us into a dilemma for God and for us both. For after the fall, he is righteous and he is, can only be righteous and can only judge us as sinners, as unrighteous and as unworthy of his fellowship. Like Isaiah, who cried out when he saw God, Woe, woe is me, he said, for I have seen the Lord, and I am undone. I'm destroyed, I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. As I walk into the presence of God, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Talking about Israel, a holy people of God, of unclean lips. Why lips? Well, because as a man speaketh, he reveals his heart. As the heart's fouled up, then out come these thoughts and, and these words that reveal the heart. The truth of the matter, my brothers and sisters, is that we are all undone before the righteousness of God. All of us, without exception, condemned before the judgment seat of God. No matter how great, no matter how small, no matter how wealthy, no matter how poor, no matter how kind, how, uh, how cruel, all of us 
falls short of the glory of God. And then we are taught that there is none, not one, who is righteous. That's a dilemma. We as a culture just don't understand this. We don't even think about this. First of all, we don't think there's, a, we, as, culturally, we don't think of our accountability before God, really. And then if we do think of it, we don't think of it as serious. Well, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't judge anybody. He wouldn't condemn anybody. Remember, there's a story about, I think it was a lady who said to a, a pastor, my God would never do such a thing. And he said, madam, your God won't do anything. He's a figment of your imagination. <laughs> I'm talking about the God who reveals himself now to us in Scripture and in Christ Jesus. I'm not making this up. I didn't even assign myself this text. He did. And this is where it gets us. Condemned before the righteousness of God and lost forever. And beyond any way for self-salvation. Totally out of it. We can't do it. Why? Because our hearts are corrupt. Well, I mean, think for a minute. I mean, we, we often don't, we, 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 since we're not used to examining our conscience, really, in the old-fashioned way, we're kind of ignorant of our own fallenness much of the time. Oh, me too. But let me just run a few things by us. We know we're supposed to treat others as we would have them treat us, but we don't. We treat others as we prefer to do. Some we like, some we don't. Some we consider significant, some insignificant. That's not the way God does. So we, uh, we don't live up to that one. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor... As you love yourself. And on these two commandments, all the other commandments express, teach you ways to love. But the driving force is this love for God and for others as much as for yourself. Well, welcome to the, welcome to the club of the lost. Jesus is the standard. He's, he's, he's not meant to be ex- exceptional in his human nature. That's just what human nature is supposed to be. God doesn't grow, doesn't uh, wink at evil. He doesn't grade on a curve. Let me give you a few things to think about. Here's a test for one week. Do not say one negative thing about another person to a third person. If you're going to say anything negative about a person, you go to that person and discuss it with him and make sure you're doing it out of love and for care. Otherwise, no negative word for one week. No negative words about another person. For just one week. Give it a try. You'll find two things. You'll discover how 
how, how, how great the silences are in your conversation. Could. I mean, I'm serious now, you guys. For some reason, gossiping is just almost second nature to us. It must make us feel good somehow. Run somebody down so you feel better about yourself. I don't know what it's all about, but it's constant. When I was dean of the seminary, from time to time it would get bad enough, as it does in any small community, I'd put up signs. Have you talked to the other person? Why are you telling me this? Have you talked to the other person before you've mentioned that to me? And they were all around the campus. Now, these are all people seeking to go to the ordained ministry now. They have, they have some commitment to trying to take this stuff seriously. But God takes it much more seriously than we do. I mean, if he didn't, would he send his son to go to a cross? And go through the agony of the, of, of, of the story, of the, of the reality of it all? Come on. Oh, gossiping. When you have nothing to think about, where does your mind go? What do you think about? God? Oops. Uh, maybe about me. <laughs> or at least something in this earth that, that I, I, you know, how slowly does my mind soar? Paul says, well, anything good, anything righteous, think on these things. Boy, we talk about a need for mind discipline. Wow. How far short we, we, we fall. Well, uh, Luther put it quite simply. He says, yeah, we have a bad case of cor incorvatus in se, the heart turned in upon itself. We have decided that the most important being in the universe is ourself. We may not always be aware of it, but that colors 90% of our thinking and our, our acting. So with this corruption in our heart, oh, one more example. Why is it natural to hate your enemies? Jesus didn't hate his enemies. He died for us while we were enemies. Oops. He says, pray for your enemies. Or if somebody's got something against you, you go to them and try to get reconciliation. If you've got something against them, you go. Whatever case, you, you, you're called to go and try to work this thing out. Not into avoidance. Which is, of course, something I understand about. What I put this way, we, how can we put on the breastplate of righteousness when we have no righteousness of our own to put on? can't do it by just a few rules. John Guest once referred to that as taking an oak tree and and tying apples on it and calling it an apple tree. It just won't work. It's still an oak tree. So we're in a dilemma. Where do we, what, what righteousness can we put on and how can we put it on? And that's Precisely to deal with that question is where Christianity starts, really. That's the foundation. If you don't take that seriously, you're probably not really very serious as a Christian. Now, 
took me a long time to get that serious. I mean, I thought I was a pretty good Christian. I was going to do commandments two through nine. <laughs> I didn't want to do one because I was in charge. <laughs> I didn't want God to be in charge. And I wasn't going to do 10 because I wanted to covet everything. Anything I wanted, I wanted to be able, free to covet it. But to hand my life over to somebody else to call the shots, wow, that's, that's a bit. I was going to do it as a nice person. But we can put on a breastplate of righteousness if God has clothed us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has to prepare a righteousness for us since we can't make one of our own. So Christ, the eternal Son of God, God the Son, took our human nature unto himself, humbled himself to leave the transcendent glory of, his, of the triune life of God and take our nature unto himself, becoming one with us. First of all, to honor, to live a holy life on our behalf so that his holy life could be reckoned unto us. And then, of course, supremely to die in our place, bearing our condemnation as our representative and as our substitute, which we receive through faith and repentance as a sheer gift. And even that by the grace and mercy of God who, who, who reaches out and calls us to himself. What a gracious God. What a God. Can we take it in? Can it really begin to shape the way we see things? Particularly in the face of a culture that hasn't a clue what we're talking about. I mean, they, they would have thought two through nine was quite, quite okay. You know, I'm just an ambitious young man. I joined the Marine Corps. I was a second lieutenant. But by George, I was, I was the next commandant. It just took time. You know, aiming for the top, all that kind of stuff. What a waste of my energy and time. The top isn't the top anyway. <laughs> the top is, is, is a humble spot, really. Well, so Christ creates a righteousness on our behalf. Here's a text for you to memorize, Second Corinthians 5.21. He made him to be sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me just fill it out a little bit. He, that is God, made him, that is Christ, to be sin, that is to stand in our place and bear our condemnation. That in him, that is united to Christ by grace through repentance and faith, united to, to that in him, we, that is we Christians, Flawed as we are, we Christians might become the righteousness of God. That is, be right in God's eyes forever. Forever. There's nothing lacking in the righteousness that God has prepared for us. It covers us through eternity. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's none. 
That's zero. Now, you may get in a little quarrel with God, get spanked or various things. You know, there's need for confession, repentance. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But there's no condemnation. For you are clothed. If you're caught up in God in Christ, you're clothed with the righteousness that is eternal. I mean, what more could you ask for? What more could God do? He made him to be sin, that we might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So what I want to affirm is that to put on the breastplate of righteousness is a twofold thing, a twofold action. One, on the one hand, it's to accept our status as being in need of a righteousness not our own, and as given to us in Christ Jesus our Savior, and as really nailed down for eternity. That's to put on the the breastplate of righteousness that God gives us in Christ. And it does us well to start each day meditating on that until our hearts are warmed, until we're confident that we move into this day with the security that no, no power on earth can interrupt this new standing we have with God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, nothing that could happen. Zero. He has won all the victories. Hallelujah. So do, it does, you, does us good to start the day with that kind of sec, security and that kind of serenity, really, and that kind of gratitude. Puts things in perspective. Yeah, I got a flat tire. Well, yeah, I did get rumpy, but it really isn't. A, even the Steelers losing. Even that <laughs> kind of pales into insignificance before the preciousness of what God has given you and us in Christ Jesus. Hails it. But there is a second aspect to this putting on the breastplate of righteousness. For to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ immediately propels us into the conflict we've been talking about, a warfare. Because now suddenly... We have an identity, we're in the midst of history, we're in the midst of living, we have a life to live, and it has to be lived in Christ. And Christ is under attack, was under attack, and we, as his embodied by him, in him, we're under attack. Both by outer forces as well as indwelling sin still within us. So there is a righteousness that we put on, which is the the righteousness of living for Christ. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness in this aspect is intentional and demands commitment and resolve. This is not a this this is not a promise to have a conflict-free life. Actually, it's quite the opposite. If you're going to stand tall and stand for the Lord, you're going to get some 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 un, unhappy people, and that's quite all right. Your Lord and Savior went through it, and you will too. Uh, it's a commitment to live righteously. To be to honor Christ in everything you do. You have a life purpose now. We all do as Christians. To honor Christ. To glorify Christ in everything we do. Now we may differ in the various things that, that fill our days. But whatever fills our days is our opportunity and our responsibility and our calling 
to do it in such a way as to bring honor to Christ and to honor him in our heart. And the more we can have that in mind, the better it is. Start thinking about it this way. Be intentional. Be in focus. Informed by the Ten Commandments, the teaching of the prophets, the teaching and examples of our Lord himself and the apostles, we seek to love God above all and our neighbors every bit as much as we care for ourselves. With the aid of the Holy Spirit work within us, with the help of brothers and sisters. And the Spirit will guide us. We'll do it imperfectly. I don't need to... I don't, I don't need to prove that. If you don't know that, why, see me afterward. <laughs> but by God's grace, putting on the righteousness of an intentional life in Christ, by God's grace, we will stand. And not only will we stand, we will advance. We will take ground. I think of John Guest starting Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry. There were three of us on the faculty. One of us is dean president, and he taught pastoral things. I taught every systematics, apologetics, ethics, all that. And Peter Davids taught uh, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. We're now one of the largest seminaries in the Anglican world. We now have... Yep. But even more important than that, we are actually pumping out, so to speak, evangelical biblical theology throughout the Anglican communion, which desperately needs it. And God is using us in ways we had the slightest clue when we started. Why is this? Never despise the days of small beginnings. For in the hand of God, the least little thing may well become a majestic thing that God uses. We didn't have a vision nearly as big as we, are, as we do now when we started. We were just trying to turn the Episcopal Church around. And as a, as a net result, the whole communion is now really under, uh, under attack from God <laughs> to reform itself. It's really amazing to see. I'm just awestruck. I mean, things are happening that you would, you would think in terms of church history would take 100 years and are happening in 15 and 20 years. It's amazing. From little acorns, mighty oaks do grow, and particularly in the hands of God. The least little thing you might do in any day, you haven't the slightest clue what that might mean in the kingdom of God. You really don't. Just to say a kind word to somebody. One guy years later told me he didn't leave seminary. He was feeling lonely and depressed. And he said, you gave me a hug that day. And I decided to stay. He's one of our finest priests. Clergy. <clears throat> I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I just loved the guy. I wanted to tell him how happy he was there. <laughs> you don't know, but God does. And you're in combat, and you're taking ground, taking ground. Look at this church. This church has grown. St. Stephen's has remained strong. We now have two strong evangelical churches. You know, even, even our squab- squabbles, God blesses. <laughs> we call it the Baptist church planning method. Have a fight and plant two churches. <laughs> but God, God's in charge. You know, that's the thing, I guess. I really want to tell you. 
if we will get in the if we'll be focused, if we'll just simply give it our best shot with resolve. And yes, we won't do it perfectly. We'll have the opportunity to repent every day. But if we'll be about this business, God will guide us in ways that you can't anticipate. And what he will do with it, we haven't the slightest clue, but it will be good. It will be good. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And my brothers and sisters, to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to be called to his purpose. So it's twofold. Accept the righteousness of Christ in which you're clothed by grace alone. And then go, then go for it. Go for it as a servant of Christ. Each morning, rise up and say, Lord, I want to honor you this day in everything I do. So help us, God. Amen.